enough of that we've got a lot to fit in this month so it's hello from he rob johns hello he's a sound on sound magazine technical editor and hello from me paul white editor-in-chief this month we have some breaking news a discussion on the basics of studio acoustics and a peek at what to expect in the october issue of sound on sound but first let's start off with a few of the new products we've been taking a look at propellerhead's record software was designed for musicians who find typical doors too intimidating It features a software mixer console which is based on an SSL 9000K series console, plus a lot more traditional arrange pages and that kind of thing, and a lot of built-in plug-in style effects and instruments. But it also integrates with Reason, so for those who already own Reason, all the Reason instruments and the effects can be accessed directly from within the record software, while guitar players get a selection of Line 6 pod guitar amps and cabinets to play with. There's also a discounted upgrade scheme to enable Reason owners to buy into record at around half the usual cost. But perhaps the main difference between record and mainstream doors, other than the simplicity of operation, is that it doesn't support third-party plugins. Apparently this enables the thing to provide significantly more stability and low latency. Also on the software front, Cakewalk have announced version 8.5 of their Sonar Windows software. The update includes some expected tweaks and bug fixes, but also adds some new processes and arrangement tools. Its new matrix view offers simple cell-based, non-linear audio and MIDI arranging with live triggering capabilities. If this sounds familiar, it's not too dissimilar from Ableton Live, but a little simpler. Also, Sonar's sequence and allows users to record beats in real-time by hitting sample pads on the left of the user interface. There are also two new processes, the PX64 percussion strip and the VX64 vocal strip. Add to this an arpeggiator in each track, a new media browser, updates to the Audio Snap Time Shift processor, and extra samples for Session Drummer, and you can see that this is quite a significant update. Roland have added to their high-end V-drums by announcing the TD20SX, which sports brushed metal shells, more robust hardware, and a larger sound set that combines existing TD20 sounds with those of the TDW20 expander. The cymbals have a new silver look and the effects section has been updated with better compressor algorithms and some new ambience treatments. Users can even change the look of the kit using optional shell wraps too. Finally, the Magneto Audio Labs Variome enables users to add variable input impedance to their existing mic preamps. It can also filter out phantom power for safe use with ribbon mics. As the impedance of a mic can significantly change the sound of the microphone, it is a piece of kit with a lot of creative potential. We look forward to trying it out, see what it can do. Sound advice. Well, as a special feature for this month's podcast, we thought we'd take a look at some acoustics. So, Paul, let's start off with uh, what's the basic difference between acoustics or acoustic treatment and soundproofing? Yeah, a lot of people tend to get these mixed up, but acoustic treatment is all about making a room sound good to listen to music in or to record music in. So it's really tailoring the listening environment soundproofing is about keeping sound in or keeping sound out so they're, they're quite different and require different approaches yeah i think they also require different budgets too don't they i mean soundproofing is notoriously difficult to do whereas sound treatment is actually relatively easy and you can make really big differences with very simple often homemade uh, treatments as, as we've demonstrated regularly in our studio sos sessions this is true. Um, certainly the high frequency reflections from walls and other hard objects in the room are fairly easy to deal with because you only need a relatively thin layer of acoustic foam or mineral wool to soak that up. 
It's the low frequencies that are, are difficult because they have a very long wavelength. And so to uh, absorb them using conventional absorbers would require a huge depth of material. Fortunately, in, in many rooms, the base problems are not too serious. But where they are, particularly where you have very solid walls, it can be quite difficult to deal with. Hugh, can you explain a little bit about standing waves and room modes? Yeah, OK, I can try. Um, basically, low-frequency reflections... Um, set up standing waves. So you've got something generating a low-frequency sound. That wavefront goes to the back wall or the side wall, whatever, gets reflected and comes back again. And you get a standing wave when the reflected sound adds constructively to the original source sound. So you end up with all the peaks emphasising each other and all the nulls emphasising each other. And that's what, what is basically a standing wave. These room modes, sometimes called eigentones, um, they cause resonant peaks, and they only, they only cause resonant peaks or very deep nulls at very specific frequencies, and those frequencies are related to the dimensions of the room, the, the front-to-back wall difference, the, the wall-to-wall side uh, width, that kind of thing. So it's related specifically to the size of room you've got. The smaller the room, the higher the frequency it's going to happen at, and the more obvious those kind of problems tend to be. So smaller rooms suffer most. Uh, they also tend to support the fewest number of modes, all the modes tend to pile up on top of one another and become very obvious. In larger rooms, you tend to have more modal frequencies because of the larger dimensions. Um, And in a well-proportioned room, they're usually fairly evenly distributed. So the bigger the room um, and the more irregular the distances between the side walls, front back wall and the ceiling and floor, the more spread out the room modes are and the less objectionable they'll be. You may not even notice them actually in a really nice room. The worst rooms we ever have to deal with are the very small square rooms, the cube rooms, where the ceiling-to-floor dimension is pretty much the same as the side wall width and the front-to-back wall width. And that's very common of typical small spare bedrooms, you find. Base problems are not so easy to deal with in small rooms as a significant depth of absorber is needed. Though there are some smaller, more elaborate base absorbers that work using damped high-mass membranes. These are almost like mineral-loaded vinyl. They're very heavy, very floppy. And uh, the analogy I like to use for that is is they work rather like someone hanging a a carpet over a clothesline and then trying to bounce a tennis ball off it. The thing gives and absorbs the energy rather than reflecting it back. These things can be quite expensive, but they're they're pretty effective, so it's worth looking at. The most effective place to put your base trap is in a corner, and that can be a vertical room corner or it can be the corner between the wall and the ceiling. But if you're in a smaller room which has got plasterboard walls, you're likely to have less problem with big peaks and troughs than you are if you have concrete walls that reflect back all the energy into the room. We did a limp mass membrane absorber a few years back in one of our Studio SOS sessions with a guy called Paul Joyner, uh, and you'll find that on the website in the back issues section in the archives. That's Paul Joyner, spelt J-O-Y-N-E-R. You'll also find that moving the speakers forwards or backwards can help to even out the bass response. And the way we like to try and do this is to play a sequence of equal level bass notes, um, quite often just a a chromatic scale of sine waves driven from a sampler. And keep listening to this as you move the speakers around and try and find a position where the the bass level is as equal as possible. If you find that some notes are really loud and some are really quiet, you have a problem. So just a few inches in either direction can help things. Avoid putting your speakers very close to walls or in corners because this increases the amount of bass energy that you hear at the listening position. Yeah, it's a useful way of of trying to balance out um, speakers. If you push them a little bit closer to the wall, you get a little bit of bass boost. But corners are a, a real desperate situation because you get so much bass boost, it's very hard to control. So try and keep them away where you can. 
And the other thing, of course, is is whatever you do, try not to end up sitting in the exact centre of a small room. Whatever happens, when you're sat in a chair at your desk, your ears are going to be roughly halfway between the floor and the ceiling because of the normal way that most rooms are designed. So you're already stuck with that. But what you don't want to end up with is being stuck exactly halfway between the front and back walls as well because that's where you tend to get the deepest nulls in small rooms. That's right. In some of the small cube rooms that we've dealt with, the base vanishes almost completely in the centre of the room. It's almost like a, as we call it, a spherical Bermuda Triangle of base. Yeah, that's right. And the last thing you want is to be sort of sitting at your desk and you, you sit back and all the base comes up and you sit forward and all the base disappears again and you've got no idea what you're trying to, to balance your mix against. However, you can deal with these um, high-frequency and mid-frequency reflections pretty easily. Uh, I mentioned earlier that you can use foam or mineral wool. If you do use mineral wool, then it's a good idea to have it in a frame covered with some kind of fabric because you don't want this um, mineral wool getting loose and people breathing it in. It's pretty unpleasant. It can cause irritation and it, it's just not nice to have a dusty room, is it really? So, no, It's pretty awful stuff, but it wouldn't look great anyway unless you covered it. So um, that's pretty much a moot point. But the most important areas to treat are the points that reflect the sound from the speakers back to your listening position, what we call the early reflections. And if you hold a mirror flat against the side wall, just forward of where you sit, you can probably see a reflection of the monitor in that mirror, and that's the place where you need to put an absorber. Same thing on the ceiling. I think you can probably miss out the floor, but certainly the two side walls and the ceiling, if it's a low room, will make a big difference. After that, maybe some absorption behind the speakers and in between the speakers as well on that wall because what you don't want to hear is um, sound reflecting back off the wall behind the speakers adding to what you're hearing from the speakers and confusing things. The other thing you need to be careful about, I mean, a lot of people think about treating the acoustics in their room meaning they have to treat every possible surface and that's really the very last thing you want to do. You really shouldn't need to cover any more than about 20 or maybe 25% of the room surface with some kind of absorber. If you start doing more than that, what will tend to happen is you suck out all of the high end and maybe some of the mid-range and you end up with a very dull, boxy, even boomy sounding room and that's definitely not what you want. The idea is to try and have an equal reverberation time at all frequencies. That's very hard to achieve at low frequencies as Paul's already said because of the amount of absorber you need to effectively soak up low frequency sound but it's very easy to achieve at mid and high frequencies with just a few scattered absorbers so some stuff at the mirror points um, maybe some foam panels or rock wall panels on the back wall and the front wall behind the speakers and uh, maybe a bit on the ceiling that's probably all you need and don't forget that um, these absorbers work better if they're thicker or if you can put an air gap behind them and by better i mean that they'll work to a lower frequency for example, if you had a piece of solid 4-inch foam, it might be effective down to around 250 hertz. But um, by spacing that another 4 inches off the wall, you could probably gain the best part of another octave out of that. So it's always good to put an air gap behind these things if you can. Yeah, and make the air gap roughly the same thickness as the material you're using in the first place. It's a good rule of thumb. And the last thing you, you must never, ever, ever, ever do, and we'll shoot anybody if we find them doing it, is to stick carpet on the walls and, even worse, egg boxes. Hmm. Yeah, the egg boxes are a bad idea because uh, on the walls the eggs all fall out and an egg box is only good for holding eggs. The problem with carpet is it's so thin it only absorbs the very highest frequencies so it'll take all the nice brightness out of your room and leave everything sounding really boxy and dreadful so don't do that. If you inherit a room where someone's already done it then the best thing you can do is put some reflective surface back onto the, uh, onto the top of the carpet and that can be thin plastic panels, pieces of wood. We've even used old CDs for this purpose. And the last thing we ought to talk about, I suppose, is, is actually the monitors themselves. Um, we've had a couple of issues recently, one with how many monitors you have in your room, and the other one with the size of monitors and with subwoofers in particular. What are your thoughts on that, Paul? 
Well, there is a, a school of thought that suggests that if you have a lot of different speakers in a room and you only use one of them at a time, as you would, then the others are going to resonate to some extent and colour the sound, and in practice we've found this to be true. How serious it is depends on the type of monitor and how many, but I recommend not having more than two or three sets of monitors up there. And also not buying monitors that are too big for the room and not using a sub if you're in a really tiny bedroom because that's more likely to aggravate your bass problems than solve them. Yeah, I agree. And a lot of people think, you know, they've got a small room, they end up sitting in the middle of the room and there's no bass there. And they think, oh, what I need is a subwoofer. Well, what happens then is that everybody outside the room hears massive amount of bass, but where you are physically in the room, you still won't hear any because the room cannot produce sound at that point in the room. It just is physically impossible. And the same applies to very big monitors. If you go for a very large monitor with a, with a powerful bass response in a small room, again, the room's going to struggle to reproduce that effectively. That's all we've got time for this month on the subject of acoustics, but we'll be coming back to visit it in more depth. We'll also be looking at uh, what you can do to improve your soundproofing. OK, it's that time in the podcast when we delve into the forum and try and find some questions to answer. But in the interests of sparing blushes and embarrassment, we're going to keep the names a secret. The first question we came across was, how do you get that heavily layered, rich, clannady, Enya-style female vocal? Now, obviously, start off with a good singer, but what else would you recommend, Hugh? Well, I think the clues in what you just said there is the layering. It's, it's the fact that you're doing a lot of overdubs with the same kind of vocal, a lot of um, overdubs of the same uh, track, the same performance, but also extra harmonies and, and so on as well to build it up. Um, and there's quite a lot of reverb in there as well, isn't there? It's quite a lush kind of sound. Yes, I think the very coarse, old-fashioned reverbs, uh, like the early lexicons, which are more granular than the, uh, than the later things, yeah. actually work really well on that kind of vocal. It gives it a very steamy, presency kind of quality. And probably using some compression to smooth out the levels without it being too obvious, because you want the whole thing to be homogenous. One of the tricks I've done to create this vocal sound uh, in, in recent years is to use the various tuning programs that you can get to take an original vocal and then tune it more accurately and add it to the original vocal because that can give the impression of two people singing together the um, slight discrepancies in tuning that you get even with a well-pitched vocal once they're ironed out with a piece of tuning software it sounds like you've got um, two different tracks so that works really nicely maybe if you can get the singer to sing two parts you can create four that way and layer them up yeah that's a good idea i think on a technical level one of the things you need to be very careful of is um, the, the preamp and the microphone you actually use because noise is going to be a real problem here. By the time you've added 8, 16, maybe even 32 tracks of vocal all doing the same thing, all of that noise is going to build up and it's going to get 3 dB louder every time you double the number of tracks. So you need to start with a really quiet mic and a really quiet preamp, otherwise you're going to be swamped in noise by the time you get to the end of it all. That's a good tip and another reason, I suppose, why you could try faking it with fewer different tracks. Yeah. Um, the other plugin which I found very useful for this is uh, part of the Antares vocal suite, and this is one called Choir. And you can set it up to eight different voices where it gives everyone a slightly different tuning, different timing, and you can even alter the uh, the timbre of the voice very slightly. I find that the four-voice setting is probably as deep as you need to go with that, and it really works quite well. If, uh, if you do that on a couple of tracks and spread them out, you can get a very rich vocal. Mm, sounds plausible. And, of course, it wouldn't hurt to uh, learn Gaelic. OK, very good. Well, I've got one for that I picked up off the forum for you now because you're a gentleman of a certain age, a bit like myself, and you'll know the answer to this. Somebody on the forum uh, managed to pick up a couple of Revox PR99 tape machines, which was the broadcast version of the B77, if you remember those. And what they wanted to know was, how do you get that classic tape flanging effect with a couple of tape machines, analogue tape machines? 
Uh, well, of course, the couple of tape machines is the uh, is the answer to that. So he now has to go out to the car boot sale and buy another one. No, he got two in the first place. He's all right. Oh, he got two. He's yeah. okay. He's yeah. This hypothetical person has two. Um, the trick is to record the same thing onto both tape machines and then to try and start them at the same time, which requires a certain amount of skill and tenacity. And then to apply a little friction to the um, to the reel, which is spooling off the tape, on one of the machines to slow it down, usually the one that's ahead in the first place. And what happens is that uh, if you mix the two outputs of the tape recorders together in mono, you get various phase cancellation effects as the timing slides uh, through the zero point and out through the other side. And unlike a mechanical phaser, which is run off an LFO and sounds very regular, this thing sounds much more random and, uh, to my mind, rather better. But it does require a certain amount of tenacity and uh, probably an elastoplast on the end of the finger as well after a day doing it. Yeah, I have cut my finger on tape spools before now, I have to say. Yeah, if you finally start the two machines at the same time is difficult, then um, you can do it as a live effect, but you haven't quite got the range of, of tuning over it because you can only slow the tape down. You can't effectively cause one to go faster than the other doing it that way. But uh, it's still a nice effect, works very well, and it is more organic than some of the electronic digital things that we have today. Absolutely. I think the tip to starting the machines together is uh, the uh, judicious use of China Graph Pencil on the back of the tape, mm. and then you line up the start points with the heads, hit both play buttons together. If it doesn't quite work out, move one of the China Graph marks and keep experimenting until you get it right. Yeah, absolutely. But, you know, if people could do it in the 60s when they were stoned all the time, I'm sure they can do it now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Another question that comes up very regularly on the forum is the whole thing about um, ground loops and ground hums. What advice do we give people for that, Paul? Well, of course, using balanced wiring where possible helps to avoid that. But uh, in the smaller home studio, one of the best things you can do is make sure that all your mains uh, supplies for all the various bits of kit are fed from the same point rather than from various sockets around the room. And the worst thing you can do is have your gear spread over two different ring mains around the house because then you really can get some uh, evil hum going. And we have had people with um, mysterious digital glitching and dropouts um, from doing exactly that. And because most gear that you're using these days doesn't take a lot of current, it's quite conceivable to run the entire home studio from a single wall socket using a star system of distribution boards. So if you need 16 sockets, for example, you might plug a four-way distribution board into the wall and then another four-way into each of those four sockets. Keep them as short as possible. No point buying a five-metre cable when you only need one metre of mains wiring. And then plug everything into that. And I think you'll find that makes a big improvement. Yeah, it does. And, and the point you made about the digital equipment is an interesting one, because although you can't hear hum on a digital ground loop problem like you can on an analogue ground loop problem, it will still cause problems with the equipment, because what happens is the digital signal ends up bouncing up and down at 50 hertz on top of a hum waveform, and that can often cause the system to become unreliable, it'll drop out, it'll glitch, you get timing errors. So uh, ground loop problems will affect digital gear as well as analogue audio gear. Hmm. So with optical digital cables, um, presumably get sun loops rather than ground loops? No, I don't think there's any way sun can get in there because they're painted black on the outside. Ah, oh, yeah. Features. Don't forget to check out the October issue of Sound on Sound, available from the third week in September. We'll be taking a look at the Korg SV1 stage vintage keyboard, which was embargoed and super top secret, but since the news leaked out in Japan recently, we've been able to talk about it. There's also a look at the UAD2 solo laptop card and the new plugins. All these universal audio things are rather cool. I've been reviewing some of those, so watch out for those in future issues. And we have a big feature on the Beatles Remastered project. 
Yeah, that looks really interesting, actually. Looks a good, good thing. Um, I took a look at the Equator Q8 uh, monitors in this issue, and uh, we also have a review of the Lexicon Ionics interface. And Paul tested the Eventide pitch factor and time factor pedals, which are probably just as useful in the studio as they are on the stage, actually. We also covered the Violet Wedge microphone, the PreSonus Studio Live mixer, Akai's MPK25 MIDI controller, the propeller head record software, and a load more. We also visit the lucky winner of the Dream Studio prize, which we gave away at the Limb Show earlier this year, and you'll get to see an entire van load of gear being unloaded and installed by Paul and myself and some of the other SOS guys uh, in this uh, very lucky winner's studio, which was pretty good. But we won't tell you where he lives, just in case you want to go and borrow it. (laughs) Yeah, this is certainly one issue you're not going to want to miss. See you next time. Bye. This is the Sound on Sound podcast.